Hi, and welcome to the Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom. This episode is brought to you by the letter R for resilience and the body positive parenting question, can I boost my child's resilience? To gain access to the virtual guide to this episode, please subscribe to the Full Bloom Project mailing list at fullbloomproject.com. According to Dr. Michael Ungar, the director of the Resilience Research Center, resilience is defined as the capacity of individuals to navigate their way to the psychological, social, cultural, and physical resources that sustain their well-being when exposed to significant adversity. Traditionally, resilience has been understood as an intrinsic trait, one you're either born with or aren't born with, in which an individual has the ability and temperament to cope with adversity and difficult events. But research increasingly suggests that resilience is not only an individual or fixed trait, but also influenced by one's relationships, communities, and resources that it actually reflects an individual's ability to get what they need to feel better, such as by reaching out to others for support, and that, perhaps most interestingly, can be acquired and developed. Here to talk to us about how parents can actively help their children develop the characteristics of resilience that, according to the research, supports their psychological, social, and behavioral health, is Dr. Idia Thurston, an assistant professor of clinical psychology at the University of Memphis, whose work focuses on culturally responsive interventions to promote healthier lifestyles, improve health, enhance well-being, and decrease risk behaviors in adolescents and young adults. Dr. Thurston, welcome to the Full Bloom Project. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm excited to talk about this work. Um, So I'm an assistant professor at the University of Memphis in Memphis, Tennessee, and um, I conducted my um, clinical internship and my postdoctoral training at Boston Children's Hospital. And something that brought me to this work was working there in uh, adolescent and young adult clinic where I would work with kids with eating disorders and also work with kids of larger body sizes and just trying to understand the things that were similar and different about these groups of kids who otherwise were adolescents and young adults have a lot of similarities and um, different relationships with food and the parents' behavior around food. And while they were separate clinics, there were lots of similarities and lots of differences. And so I was struck by that and how health disparities impact those uh, concerns differently and so I got really interested in this in this kind of work. And I think the other piece was how stigmatizing um, these different disorders can be. 
Yeah, I just want to say I can really relate to that working. Both of us work a lot with eating disorders in the acute phase, and we're so interested right now, and that's why we started this podcast and and just thinking broadly about how to really help before it becomes so acute. And just people thinking about this is so important to us. So thank you for joining us and sharing your exploration of these of this issue with us. So this article talks about the college environment as a particularly high-risk setting um, for binge eating behaviors. Can you talk about your thoughts about why that is and, and if you've found any findings around that? Yeah, so um, the great thing about college is that um, there's a lot of independence and young adults often leaving home for the first time are leaving their kind of comfort of the home environment to the an environment where they get to control quite a bit of the environment. And what we find is that that college level, while this great time of exploration and great opportunities to develop um, your identity, get connected in romantic relationships, friends relationships, learning all this new stuff, also comes with a lot of stress. So um, all of that stuff, all those great things are also very stressful things. And so we find that developmentally, because of what's happening in that time period um, of young adulthood, that there are uh, unique things about that time period. And also physiologically, there are different pieces about brain development that's happening during that phase as well that contributes to what a lot of people talk about adolescence as impulsive and, you know, these kinds of behaviors. But there's physiological reasons for that. And so we find that the college setting, in addition to the developmental things that are happening, um, you have these add, this added sudden onset of stress because you're in this environment. You have to now do all this stuff, which is what, as an adolescent or young adult, you've been wanting. But then there's the realities of what that's like, right? And so often um, young adults are trying things for the first time. There's this also developmental piece about um, invincibility. So this sense of like, you know, I can't be harmed in some way, um, which leads to that kind of more risk-taking behaviors. And so when we think about binge eating behavior, it often is a behavior that happens in the in a way to cope with stress. And so when we have this great influx of stressors and combined with this independence, sort of, you know, no one's watching over you as closely. Um, if you came from that kind of parental household, there's a sort of new freedom. You find that it's almost like the, you know, the perfect combination to engage in, you know, healthy and unhealthy coping um, strategies. So we really see that college environment and that college time period um, as a time where a lot of risky behaviors happen, not just um, eating disorders. I like what you said about like a perfect, it's like a perfect storm in many ways. Right. And, and so in a way, it, it, yeah, like what a great setting to explore these things in the college environment because it is this huge transition and inevitably stress abounds. And, you know, it's, we talk a lot about certain things that are really kind of intuitive and certain things that are counterintuitive for for parents in terms of trying to understand why problematic behaviors develop. And so you explore that link between stress and binge eating. And it's kind of intuitive. Like people know about like stress eating and things mm -hmm. like that. But 
can you talk to us why you chose to study this link between stress and binge eating and kind of what you found? And also, if you can talk a little bit about the difference between stress eating and binge eating, because they, they, they can be different. Yes, absolutely. So with the first piece about why study stress and binge eating, so in addition to this kind of perfect storm, there's this model called the cumulative stressor model that really talks about it's almost like there's a tipping point, like as the stress just adds up, adds up, you know, like it just there's this huge, you know, overload of stress that slowly builds up and it just kind of tips you over in a way. And so that um, the, the model really helps to understand how like multi-layered stressors can kind of push people into unhealthy coping when it just feels so overwhelming. And what's interesting is that um, you find this is true when it comes to substance use. So you see high rates of binge drinking also in this age population. You see high rates of kids being diagnosed with uh, sexual health disorders and sexual high rate of sexual risk. So we see a lot of these kind of unhealthy ways of coping in them because there's this sort of, you know, huge amount of stress that kids are trying to find ways to deal with, right? Because physiologically, our body does not like to be stressed. So we have to find a way to get it out. And so if the right setting is in place, then we might choose less healthy ways to get that, that stress out. And so what we're finding is that this, because there's this link between stress and binge eating, we wanted to understand not only what drives it, because most of the time we talk about this negative piece, like if all these bad things happen, then you handle it in a poor way. Well, how about people who do handle it in a good way? So we wanted to like get a full picture of how people were coping with their stress. And um, to the difference between sort of stress eating, so this idea of kind of constantly going in and eating different things when you're experiencing a high level of stress, which is a coping mechanism, is different from binge eating, where in binge eating disorder, we see individuals eat significantly large amounts of food. So um, within a two-hour setting, where these are, you know, large amounts of food. So you can imagine like a couple boxes of pizza. So when I, when I work in a clinic where we work with kids, um, and a lot of the way I described it, described this to the kids is like, you know, or to the parents, it's like really large amounts of food that you wouldn't imagine being uh, the amount of food that one person would eat in one setting. So I would say like, you know, a whole tub of ice cream, like the big tub and like an entire chicken, roasted chicken, like really large amounts of food. And so we use that to really describe, to differentiate between stress eating, where you're just kind of eating, nibbling throughout the day constantly, but not the really, really large amounts of food. And I think the other piece that's important with binge eating um, disorder is the um, guilt that often co comes afterwards. So there's this sense of like, I have eaten this really large amount of food and this coming from this sort of negative guilt feeling, feeling bad about it, which often with stress eating, you don't really see that level of um, guilt that comes with binge eating disorder. So I think looking at those two you know, stress eating versus binge eating, we have we have significant physiological concerns with binge eating because of what it does to the to the um, to our bodies. And of course, you know, stress eating it's good to have other coping strategies, but that does not necessarily lead to binge eating. Because um, parents will ask that, oh, is it because they were stress eating? Not necessarily. Um, we know that binge eating is a an eating disorder, so it's a different kind of relationship with food that's not a healthy relationship with food. 
Thank you for describing the difference there. I think that's helpful for our listeners. And I imagine that a lot of listeners are thinking that question you just asked about, hey, does does stress eating then lead to binge eating? But what you also studied in this, which I think it's most important that parents understand this concept is the idea of resilience um, and that being a protective factor that can help weaken this association between stress and binge eating. And I'm wondering if you can talk about what resilience means and what it means in the context of eating behaviors and eating disorders. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what we were really interested in, again, is shifting away from this language of just bad things lead to bad things and looking for ways that even when you experience bad things, you're able to cope because we've all had those days where we've had a really rough day and you might get this like text or see something that makes us laugh, makes us smile, um, that kind of pulls us out of that state that we were previously in. And so resilience in the field has been described in a couple different ways. And, and I think it's, it's one of those terms that can sometimes be confusing. Um, and I think part of it is because even as a field, it's new, right? We're just now starting to talk about you know, how people cope in positive ways. So um, most of the time we're we're thinking negatively. And so there's two ways to sort of conceptualize or think about resilience. One, people used to talk about resilience as a trait. So some people are sort of resilient and some people are not. So there are these people who like, no matter what hits them, it's like, you know, washes off their bodies, like nothing ever happened. And there are people who don't. That was the way we used to think about resilience. Now we've been thinking about it in a different way where it's something that you can actually acquire, which is, I think, hopeful for people because you want to try to build resilience in your kids. And if it's something that you have or don't, then that that doesn't really uh, give you an opportunity to build that. But the way the field has shifted is to think about resilience as happening at different levels. So there's this piece about there are some people and we probably can identify our friends or some people who just have a different, you know, almost temperament or personality where things don't bother them in the same way. But they, when they experience a hard thing, they're able to bounce back from that hard thing that they've experienced fairly rapidly. And so that's um, the traditional definition of resilience, the ability to bounce back from adversity or bad things that have happened and kind of bounce back to where you were before. So um, you were kind of coasting along, something bad happened, you kind of drop in your feeling down, et cetera, but then re- relatively quickly you're able to bounce back up to where you were before. Now now in the field, we're, we're talking about that's also important at an individual level, but they're also resilience because people don't live in isolation. And so if you're if you have really good relationships with your family, that's something that protects you. If you have really great connections in your community, that's something that protects you. So we've been looking at resilience at multiple levels and thinking about resilience as something that individuals have, but also when individuals are able to get what they need to feel better. So they're able to like send a text to that friend who will, who gets you out of, you know, that bad spot when you're feeling that you have those social supports and those social networks um, to reach out to that. That's a resilient skill, right? That's a way your ability to kind of access that person in your, in your social support group to support you 
um, when you're able to reach out to people in your community, whether it's your church community, your neighborhood community, when you're able to do that, to reach out to that group, that that's resilience. Because knowing that you have these people to help you and your ability to reach out to those is also conceptualized as resilience. And so what we wanted to see is, does having resilience or you know the, this multi kind of level um, resilience help you um, when you're experiencing stress? And we were thinking that for people who experience high levels of stress, if they also have you know, really strong resilience, that they will be less likely to engage in binge eating as a way to cope with their stress because they're able to sort of reach out to these networks, reach out to their own, their own ability to bounce back. And because they do that, they're less likely to engage in this negative kind of coping um, behavior, engage in binge eating. And, um, and that was what we found, essentially, that those um, individuals who were more resilient, um, who showed more of this resilience skills, were less likely to engage in um, binge eating in the context of having a lot of stress in that college setting. That's, it's amazing. And it's, even as you were talking, it's so hopeful to, mm-hmm. to reframe this word resilience, because I think it does conjure up this like, oh, you either have it or you don't. Like you were, mm-hmm. my kid is resilient or she's not. And this idea that it's actually something that can be acquired and uh, you can help your kids build. Yeah, it's hopeful. And I think it's a new, like you're saying, it's a new concept in the field or it's newly right. researched. And I think it's going to be, it, it's a brand new concept for parents that are not connected to the field it's, uh, to think about. And so, of course, it brings this question, what can young people do to build their resilience? And, you know, for the purposes of our listeners who are mostly parents, what can parents do to help our own children develop resilience at all ages so that when they do end up in college, they're falling into the category of these kids that you, that you studied that, that were more protected from binge eating, for example? Like, how can we help them as young as as childhood how, how can we help our children build this type of resilience that you're talking about yeah no that's great um so i think again thinking about that multi-level so i as a parent thinking about how can you build resilience at that individual level at the relational level and at this um contextual and community and cultural level so there are these uh, multiple levels. And I would encourage parents to think about at each of these levels, what's one thing I can do to kind of support my child. So on the individual level, thinking about your adolescent, your young person, um, what has been shown are um, things that help build resilience in adolescence are these five C's. So there are five C's um, that help to help adolescents have positive um, development. And um, these five C's, one of which is competence. So we want to try to provide opportunities that kids can feel competent in, that they like slowly learn and feel good about themselves because they they believe that they have the ability to do something. So as whatever that looks like for your child, 
like looking for those opportunities opportunities where they can build competence and they can feel good about what they're doing. Um, the second C is confidence. So again, that you can imagine that ties in nicely with this idea of competence, that um, building that confidence, feeling self-efficacy and positive self-worth, that they feel good when they try something new, that you're providing opportunities for them to try something new, and then so that they get to feel good about it. And with the, sorry, to go back to the confidence is doing it long enough so that they get good at it, right? So kind of sticking, sticking with it. The third C is connection. So really trying to build these positive bonds with people and institutions, whether it's with their teachers, their parents, like modeling these behaviors for kids with peer groups. And this dovetails nicely into that relational step that I mentioned earlier, because, you know, social support is one of the strongest protective factors, one of the strongest resilience factors that has been shown study after study says if you're supported, if you're well connected in social groups, that it helps you across a range of different aspects. So when kids are isolated, that's really where we get concerned. When they're kind of cut off from people, they're not really connected with peer groups, with adults. Those are kind of red flags for us as psychologists to think about what's going on and how we can intervene, but really thinking about ways to build connection for kids. And some of that is providing them with opportunities for them to be able to build those connections. So you can see that these C's really connect. The fourth is character. So helping them get that sense of right and wrong, um, integrity, respect for the, what is considered correct behavior or good behavior. So really providing opportunities for kids to practice self-control and learning about like sometimes we make hard choices even if it's not the choices we want because that's what builds character. This is also in this character where um, spirituality and religiosity can really play a role. So when people are connected, have this kind of other power that they feel is bigger than them, and that can be however that is. Um, if it's Islam, if it's um, Buddhism, whatever that kind of spiritual connection is for you, if it's Christianity, um, but just having this other rules or, or ideas that help to build that character and make people, people feel um, that they're working towards this higher purpose. Um, the fifth is caring. So finding ways for kids to learn empathy and have sympathy for other people. Often this is one where volunteering comes in a lot. So being able to care for someone outside of themselves. And I should keep in mind that as working with spending a lot of time that I have over the past 15 years working with adolescents, oftentimes they're kicking and screaming and saying they don't want to do these behaviors. So I'm not, as a psychologist, saying like, oh, this is easy. Just make your kids do this. But what we've shown is that parents really matter to adolescents, even when they push back, that like they really, really matter to kids because the data shows that the parents are very involved that kind of stay on their kids to do these things in a positive way and in a way that they can negotiate um, what really matters to them, that those kids do well over and over uh, again. And so really thinking about these five C's, competence, confidence, connection, character, and caring, and looking for opportunities to expose kids, um, young people to these five C's so that they can develop. And then um, working on that individual level and that relational and that cultural and community level. I think if kids are interested in social justice initiatives, like let them, because that's an opportunity for them to like learn more about something that's bigger than them, to contribute. It really hits on many of these five C's. So I think for parents, that's a big 
thing to think about because I think sometimes when you're parenting an adolescent, you're constantly asking, you know, am I doing the right thing? You're feeling sometimes negative feedback from your adolescent and you can feel like a struggle. And so I wanted to share that the data shows that you keeping at it is um, leads to good outcomes for your kid, even when it's really difficult. Thank you. I love this five seeds easier to hold on to than something kind of more abstract than this, like five different elements. I'm wondering the kind of million dollar question for you, just if you were to offer a parent one thing that they did each day or, you know, once a week to capture one of these five C's or all of them somehow in one, one action, I don't know if that's too big, too big of an ask. What would you say? Ooh, one thing. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, I think the biggest one is, and this is for a parent to engage with their adolescent, right? With their child. I think modeling those positive relationships. I mean, nothing can beat spending time with your child because part of it is that spending time and talking, communicating with your child will let you get a sense of these things, right? Like if there's time spent that's really like protected time, um, that's not no screens, no TV, no for parents I like work calling, like, you know, if you're taking a walk or whatever it is, like just kind of unhooking from the world. And if you could do that and you have, you know, a 30 minutes time, you know, if you can fit an hour in great, but even if it's 30 minutes and you have this protected time to really talk to your young person to find out. And if, if your kids are off in college and you do this by phone, that's great. But as long as there's this like constant connection, because what that does is it, it avoids this sort of like you know, when something is really bad, then, oh, man, I have to call home and tell them this bad thing. But if you have this continuous connection, this, like, structured, protected time that your child can always count on, that you always make, that it's always protected for you all, then it may not be the first time, the second time, maybe the third time they kind of give you a little something that you can build off of. But that consistent time is really important because if it will really help them to um, know that they always have that time with mom or dad or, you know, whoever that is. Like I have or I have this protected time and it builds social support and some of those seeds that we talked about. So um, and I think those strengthens that parent child relationship, because ultimately that's what has been shown. Right. That, that relational factors really matter in spite of our world of technology taking over. It's still that individual connection that has been shown over and over again to matter. It's a great response. And it's been so wonderful talking to you. And I, I'm with Leslie. I love the five C's. I'm going to talk about all the time because it does. It really breaks it down in a way that can help maybe parents organize for themselves. Mm -hmm. I just want to thank you also for giving us this new definition of resilience that I hope parents can hear and really be get proactive about it. I'm, I'm, as I'm hearing this, I know we talked a lot about what we can do for our adolescent children, but I'm so aware that, and I'm curious if you agree that this could be translated for even parenting a child. Absolutely. Definitely. I mean, these are things starting early is good, right? Because the more you, the earlier you have those connections and you can adapt as 
as development happens and kids, you know, sometimes get annoying. <laughs> um, I think as a, as a mom, maybe I can say that. You, can, you have this kind of baseline, this basis to come back to. And so starting as early as you can is great. I also though want to emphasize because I do love adolescence and I think that's such a great time because there's so much magic happening uh, developmentally and relationally that like it's never too late. Like I know our parents are like, oh, I didn't start this when my kid was five, so I guess that's it. You know, I absolutely want to emphasize that it's never too late to start building that connection with your child, never. So that's our show. If you haven't already, we strongly encourage you to grab the virtual guide to this episode by subscribing to our mailing list at fullbloomproject.com. This is where you will find a guide to the five C's Dr. Thurston shared with us today so you can help your kids build up their competence, confidence, connection, character, and caring, all essential ingredients to blooming in full. If you like what you're hearing, we would greatly appreciate your leaving us a review or rating on iTunes or Stitcher so others can find us. Follow us on Instagram at Full Bloom Project and tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom.